Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Janice Kortkamp. She is a completely 100% self-funded independent journalist with help from crowdfunding and her family. And Janice made seven trips to Syria during the years 2016 through 2019, saw the civil war occurring there up front. She spoke with soldiers, doctors, lawyers, scientists, community and government leaders, professors, you name it, talked to the Syrian people. And believe it or not, what was reported in the United States about Bashar al-Assad, the war, and who was fighting who wasn't 100% accurate, at least as far as what she saw herself personally. I know that comes as a great surprise to my audience, and I know you'll be interested in hearing what she has to say. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me on. I appreciate it. What made you decide to go to Syria on your first trip? It was a process. It was a four-year process, actually. I started researching the war and Syria as a country back in 2012. And at that time, I realized it was the first time in human history you could connect directly with people going through a war real time. And so I was doing that on Facebook, Skype, et cetera, as well as all the book research and the background on not just the conflict, but the country as a whole. And I became fascinated by Syria as a country. And really alarmed at how different what I was finding in my research and talking to Syrians was from the reporting that we were getting in the press. And so I didn't know if I was going crazy or if what I was seeing was true. So I thought, well, I really have to go there and see if what I'm thinking matches reality on the ground. And my sole purpose was to just meet with as many Syrians as possible, spend as much time as I could with them, and try to learn from them what was happening there. Now, did you have a background in foreign service or journalism, or was this just something you did for the first time ever? Well, I've always been interested in history and archaeology and was the editor of my school newspaper in high school. But other than that, no, no background whatsoever. I just became obsessed 
to be honest with you. I was, after 9-11, I had gotten suckered into the propaganda and to my shame. And it took all those years to finally wake up and see that we had been lied to about all of this stuff. And, and I was so shocked. It really did make me obsessed with finding out the truth. And I just had to go. So I think I could summarize the standard version of this as there's a civil war broke out in Syria, and it was the good people of Syria seeking to overthrow the tyrannical dictator Bashar al-Assad, and the United States seeing the humanitarian disaster caused by Assad making war on his own people, including using chemical weapons, decided to intervene in that conflict on the side of all that's right and good. Let's break that down. What's wrong with that narrative that I just repeated that we heard for six or seven years? Yeah, this has been going on since March of 2011. So we're looking at 11 years of war now. But people have to realize that the attempts to undermine the Syrian government began in 2004 under the George W. Bush administration. By 2005, the efforts were so obvious. Christine, Christiane Amanpour went to Damascus and said to Bashar al-Assad's face, the U.S. is already picking out a new leader for Syria, was exactly how she phrased her question. That was 2005. From 2006 to 2010, the CIA was training what they call activists and journalists for the opposition, and there was a lot of political maneuvering there. In, by 2007, the embassy wrote a cable, and this was one of the WikiLeaks exposés, that basically said, in spite of all our attempts to undermine Assad, we failed. He's more popular than ever. And so all this was going on for years before the violence broke out in 2011. So it was actually what I call a manufactured proxy regime change attempt war. And what really was so disturbing and disgusting and despicable about it was we were using literal terror terrorist groups as our proxies, and that included al-Qaeda and even using ISIS as an asset there. When you talk to the people in the streets in Syria, what generally do they say about Assad? Well, of course, it's not really about President Assad, and really the pronunciation is more Assad, but there is a wide spectrum of support for the president within Syria, has been throughout the war. And I've always described this as the great majority of the Syrian people, as a matter of fact, and it ranges from everything from total devotion and admiration to very grudging uh, acceptance of the fact that he was just much better than the alternative that was offered by the U.S. and its allies. Literally, these very extremist, religious fundamentalists, very violent, including al-Qaeda, going in and taking control of secular women empowering Syria. Syria is really an extraordinary country. It's an amazing place to go. And the people there are probably the most friendly and welcoming of anybody I've ever met anywhere in my travels in the world. It's, it's an astonishing place. And so you have this country in the heart of the Middle East where women were wearing you know, tank tops and short shorts if they wanted to. Christians were thriving the middle class was thriving. All of these things were going very well there. Not that there aren't many problems, but this, this regime change was not popular in the government. Everybody wants reforms. 
no kidding, in Syria. Everybody wants serious reforms in the government, but few Syrians wanted to take up arms and support an armed insurrection. I can think of another country where a lot of people would like to see some things changed, but uh, wouldn't necessarily want to take up arms. So certainly you're not going to find any political leader who's 100% approval. It's funny, if you could get a real poll of the Syrian people in, let's say, 2015 compared to the United States president now, and I'm not sure the U.S. president would win that. Well, there have been two elections taking place over the course of this war, and they were immediately dismissed by the U.S. as being hoaxes or whatever. But in fact, after being on the ground, they were fairly accurate. The people that were under the so-called rebels weren't allowed, of course, to participate by their freedom-loving, head-shopping terrorist leaders. But the people in the throughout the great majority of areas in Syria did participate, and the voting was often incredibly enthusiastic. When the U.S. State Department doesn't like the results, they say that the election wasn't legitimate. Of course, if you say that about our election, then you're an insurrectionist. So the double standards are everywhere. What is the Syrian people's perception of why the U.S. would want to get rid of Assad? Well, everyone knows there, not everyone, but the great majority understand that it's because of Israel. Syria has always been a resistance country to Israeli expansionism. And of course, there's the long running conflict over the Golan. And so the U.S. neocons really wanted to take out Syria, and this would make the way for Israel to take more control over Lebanon and to break what's called the arc of resistance in the northern countries. So that's Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. And so they took out Iraq first, and that to break that arc of, of, of the strong independent countries with the large armies, and then they went after Syria next. And this is what General Wesley Clark was talking about in the Seven Countries in Five Years plan. It's almost self-contradictory. I'm trying to think of the right word. But if you take out Assad, you got to assume that somebody more radical, like the head choppers we were arming and funding, would take over. How does that help Israel? Well, in, in many ways. One is that, and I don't know how deeply you want to get into this, but Israel is the only country ISIS has ever apologized to for attacking and their head of military intelligence said they would prefer ISIS to the quote Iran in Syria. And this has to do with a couple of things. One is Al Qaeda, the rebel forces in Syria, even the most radical ones often appealed to Israel for assistance. So there is definite collusion there. The other thing is that a secular woman empowering, growing in democratic structure, Syria, that is resisting Israel's influence in the region, looks bad. They, it, it's kind of, it's, it's good for Israel to have it, to have people think of the Middle East as Israel versus the monsters. I did not know that ISIS apologized for anything to do with Israel. That's interesting, seeing as there are theories that ISIS is wholly a creation of the United States intelligence community, but I don't know what truth there is to that or if you have an opinion on that. Well, of course, ISIS, I call it ISIS was being, was incubated in the Camp Buka prison system in Iraq, the U.S. Camp Buka system. 
And certainly the U.S. has been using ISIS as a, a justification for its own illegal occupation of Syrian lands and to, to get the troops in there in the first place. That was the reason, in fact, that Russia was persuaded to come in to Syria in the first place back in 2015. There was a leaked audio recording of John Kerry speaking to the Syrian opposition, describing to them how the US had been watching ISIS grow in hopes that it would put pressure on Assad to negotiate or basically step down. And as ISIS was growing and literally threatening taking over Damascus, uh, people like General Soleimani of Iran went to Putin and said, you've got to step in or Syria would become the caliphate, the terrorist headquarters of the world. And that's when Putin came into Syria militarily. One of the things that always struck me as too coincidental was the fact that the United States State Department had regime change operations going in Ukraine and Syria at the same time, and that they're both homes to the only warm water ports that Russia has on this side of the Eurasian continent. Do you have a sense that there's anything to that, that the Russia connection matters as far as regime changing Syria, or is it all about Israel? I think it does matter in my opinion, in the sense that Russia really put the kibosh on this terrorist proxy regime change war in Syria, and he became public enemy number one for the Obama administration at the, at the loss of the election. And it was kind of around that time that all of this stuff started really brewing in Ukraine. And I think part of it was punishment for his involvement in Syria. I could be wrong about that, but that's my gut feeling because then you had in 2014, now again, this was before military action took place in Syria on the Russians' part. However, there was a critical veto in the UN in 2012, the US was pushing for the UN resolution for Assad to step down and Russia and China vetoed it. And this was a, a huge turning point in the momentum that was building up to that, that time. And so after 2012, then in 2014, there was the Maidan coup in Ukraine. So I, I see Ukraine as kind of another tragic and sad front in a long running war between, you know, what I call the US war racket and their dreams of global hegemony, and Russia just finally saying enough is enough. We're doing something about this. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. 
You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. I want to get to the parallels between Syria and Ukraine and what's going on in both countries. But the one thing I want to make sure I don't forget to ask you about, of course, are the alleged chemical weapons attacks. So I think. The first one occurred before you made your first trip. Did any of them occur while you were there or any of them allegedly occur while you were there? No, but the U.S. attacks in retaliation did. I, I was near ground zero for both the retaliatory, the so-called retaliatory attacks by the U.S. and then the U.S., France and U.K. in Damascus. But I did, of course, talk to many people there about that and this is one of those cases where the U.S. is continually accusing other governments of really doing suicidal things that, that would only damage them as opposed to give them any help at all. And this is the case of one of these chemical weapons attacks allegations. The first one, for example, I had been seeing Syria at the U.N., pleading and working, trying to get an independent investigative team into Syria to investigate chemical weapons attacks allegations. And literally that team was unpacking their bags in Damascus when supposedly President Assad couldn't control himself and let one fly right there in a (laughs) suburb of Damascus. And it's very important to note that all of the so-called evidence for these chemical weapons attacks, except for the last one, were only provided by the so-called rebels themselves. The UN investigators, the OPCW, was not in, (laughs) never granted access to those sites because they were literally controlled by terrorist groups. So the only investigative, the only evidence was provided by the people who benefited most from there being a so-called chemical weapons attack because that was supposed to assure them these wonderful many tens of millions of dollars worth of airstrikes on their behalf by the U.S. So they had everything to gain by creating false flags. And Syria had everything to lose by doing something that would set the world against them, so to speak. And as I mentioned in my recent article, the one time that it really would have made sense to use chemical weapons was in Palmyra, when, I, when ISIS controlled that amazing site out in the middle of the desert, they were completely isolated. They could have used chemical weapons, completely wiped out the ISIS terrorists there and saved those incredible ruins that were such the pride of Syria. And they used conventional warfare and lost many, many men in the process. It was not in Assad's interest. And there were people arguing that here, of course, not anyone who could get themselves on MSNBC or anything like that. 
But I remember that there was one where he was on the verge of winning. And then all of a sudden, supposedly he launches this chemical weapons attack, which is only going to bring the United States further into the conflict or at least run the risk of doing so. So he had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by doing so. We're supposed to believe that he acted against his own self-interest. You mentioned that the last one was different. How so? Well, the last one was in Eastern Ghouta, and that area got liberated. The alleged chemical weapons attack happened while that liberation process was in place, was going on. And there was this, all of these, these videos showing all these people killed by the attacks. Now, if I can really kind of dial into this a little bit, this is important. The terrorists that controlled that area had claimed they had 4,000 kidnapped victims that they were holding for ransom. In fact, they used to put them in cages. They'd parade them down the streets. They'd put them on the tops of their headquarters buildings. So they had thousands of people to use as uh, fodder to, to kill or to, to show as being injured by a chemical weapons attack. So that's one factor. Of that 4,000 people that they had, only 200 survived. Okay? So, but the hospital doctors were interviewed by the OPCW team that did get in there after the Syrian army liberated the area from the terrorists and the Russians. They went in there and along with journalists and the doctors interviewed said, we saw no one suffering from the effects of the chemical weapons attack coming into the hospital that day. What had happened was these, these rebels had gone in and were, were bribing children with candy and stuff to come with them. And they took them into the hospital. They just barged into the hospital with their video cameras and were spraying people down with water and filming this as though these were doctors treating people who suffered a chemical weapons attack. It's quite actual juvenile and amateur in the production. And OPCW investigators that were on the ground, this is something that the gray zone has done really remarkable work in. The actual investigators who were on the ground disagreed with the final report of the OPCW leaders. That's the uh, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, okay, the official UN investigating group. So the actual investigators that were on the ground said that the leaders that finalized this and produced this final report were, were pressured into making it look like they had established guilt against the Syrian army and leadership, when in fact the investigators on the ground found that it was just like there was some residue of chlorine that could have been explained by, by simply washing surfaces like you would do at home with bleach. So there's a lot of corruption going on here and a lot of cover-ups and things like that that are going to take years for people to get really get out. But it's the chemical weapons attacks are more WMDs in Iraq kind of hoaxes, false flags, more like the incubator ba babies in Kuwait stories, the stories about Gaddafi feeding his soldiers Viagra so they could rape more women. Now, these are classic propaganda BS. 
used to get good people to support bad U.S. policy. So it struck me when the Ukraine war broke out and this lionization of Zelensky, because he's kind of a parallel for Assad. You could make the argument that Zelensky spent the last three years, his his whole presidency, making war on his own people as Assad did. You know, that's what happens in a civil war is the other side are people from your own country. Although in Syria, a lot of them were not from Syria, but he's a hero. Assad was a villain. I guess there's no chemical weapons alleged. Well, now there is. So what do you see in the Ukraine propaganda that looks familiar from Syria? There's so many parallels. And you have to be careful about not making assumptions, of course, based on previous experience. But the parallels are that the press can make any zero a hero and any hero a zero just by how they present things. And prior to the invasion by Russia, the press was actually quite fair in describing Ukraine as one of the most corrupt governments on the planet. The Nazi battalions that were in action there and all of these things, they were really nailing Zelensky for many things. And then as soon as the invasion happened, suddenly he's Saint Zelensky and you have to accept him as your Lord and Savior or your Russian (laughs) asset. This is this is classic. This has been going on World War One. We had those posters, slay the brute, the German brute. And this is how war propaganda works. And the sad thing is Americans don't realize how propagandized we are. I think also of Uncle Joe, our wonderful ally there, who might have helped defeat a brutal dictator, but not such a clean record himself. I went back and dug up some articles about Zelensky before he won the election in 2019. And interestingly, Foreign Policy Magazine, the Council on Foreign Relations publication, basically the empire's think tank, they were painting him as pro-Putin, like he was another Trump. We can't let this guy get elected. He's not tough on Putin enough. So he gets in there and we send the weapons over to him and he has this smoldering conflict for eight years. And all of a sudden now he's a hero by the same magazine, like you said, taking the zero and making him a hero. Do you have plans for doing reporting on Ukraine or are you still concentrating on Syria or what's next? Well, my focus and my heart is in Syria. I love those people. I love that country. The U.S. is still maintaining its illegal occupation of one-third of Syria's lands, the same lands that just so happen to have the richest oil fields on them. They're still training and equipping a mercenary army to try to balkanize Syria. Turkey still has an illegal occupation there. Israel still illegally occupied and go on. And the U.S. sanctions are impoverishing the country. So that's my primary focus. But I will be talking often about these parallels. We've just mentioned a few. And for me, when I look at Ukraine, I see the years building up to this situation. I hate war. I hate this invasion, all of those things. But I can see how Putin would have felt backed into a corner And if it's true that the Ukrainian militias and army building up forces for a major attack against the Donbass region, then that would have been an impetus for him to go in and feel he had to do that. 
or if there was going to be U.S. missiles coming into Ukraine, et cetera. So there were many things that could have forced his hand on this. And what I see is the U.S. warmongers and profiteers wanting a very long, drawn-out, bloody war there, similar, like Hillary Clinton said, similar to that wonderful operation where we armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 80s. Didn't that work out just so beautifully? And that's what she's saying the U.S. wants in, in Ukraine, and I think she's right about that. And that would leave Ukraine devastated, a wasteland, every family mourning somebody dead, most people leaving, a total desert. And this is, and the U.S. warmongers would be happy with that. And this is what I'm trying to tell people and warn people of. Wherever anyone's sympathies lie, we want to minimize the damage going forward and prolonging the war is not the way to do it, in my opinion. Well, Janice, I'm so glad that you could spare the time to come and share this information. It's invaluable to hear from somebody who actually was there on the ground in Syria and also to remind us that the U.S. involvement there is by no means over, nor the trouble it's causing Syrians. Where can people find more information about your work and what's going on in Syria? I do have a website that's called syriaresources.com. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter as Janice Courtcamp. And I would be honored if people would follow what I'm saying there and interact and Thank you so much for having a thought of Syria, because uh, a lot of people have forgotten that the U.S. is still there and that the sanctions literally are driving people into starvation. And so we need to keep this in front of people. All right. Sounds good. I will link to your website and to your social media pages, and hopefully you can come back in a little while and give us an update on what's going on. Thanks so much, Tom. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap for today. If you like what you're hearing on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, please do subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to check out my website at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com, where you'll find all of my commentary. And if you haven't already, make sure you download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at ItsTheFedStupid.com. And if you like the music you've been hearing on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you on Friday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.